The Minor Constellations Podcast. Conversations with engaged thinkers and doers. I'm Kathleen Sampson. And I'm Yair And we're doctoral fellows at the research training group Minor Cosmopolitanisms, which hosts this podcast. In this episode, we talk to Ben Ratzkoff. This time, we recorded our conversation with a live audience as part of the Minor Cosmopolitan Assembly event at Silent Green Kulturquartier in Berlin-Wedding. Welcome, everybody, um, to the first ever live recording of the Minor Constellations podcast. Um, thank you so much, all of you, for being here. Um, we're really excited for this event and also excited to do it with a group of people in the room for, for once. Um, our conversation today is going to be with Ben Ratzkoff, um, and we're going to be talking, uh, rethinking Jewish diaspora, about Jewish di identity, diaspora politics, and analogy. Ben is visiting assistant professor in the Laukheim School of Judaic Studies at Hebrew Union College um, and the University of Southern California. Um, he completed his dissertation, which is titled Waltzing with Hitler, Black Writers, the Third Reich and Demonic Grounds of Comparison, 1936 to 1940 in June 21. And his writing has appeared in such publications um, as Studies in American Jewish Literature, Jewish Studies Quarterly, as well as the Los Angeles Review of Books, The Funambulist, and Jewish Currents. So thank you so much, Ben, for joining us. We're very, very happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to zoom in. So we are especially uh, excited that Ben is joining us in conversation today because we find that his work illuminates a lot of the questions that have occupied us lately and are especially pressing for me, both politically and um, intellectually. So today's conversation is centered around questions that, at least in the German context, but not only, are prominent in the public discourse. So questions regarding memory, regarding Jewish history, regarding colonial history, the history of slavery, and their ongoing afterlives. So Ben works exactly on these themes and his main focus, I would say, Ben, you can argue, uh, focusing on the question of analogy. So he recently gave an excellent talk at the Hakave conference, um, the very kind of debated conference called Hijacking Memory. The title was that, the title of the talk was James Baldwin and the Politics of Holocaust Exceptionalism. So you can already, already like see what is uh, Ben's perspective and he's, because of that, and also before, very well versed in the uh, specificities and difficulties uh, of talking about these kind of things in the German context. So we can also open that um, and talk about that later on. So as we usually do in our conversations, we will also today focus on a text. So in this case, it's two texts that Ben um, wrote, one just lately and the other one two years ago. The first is in the Funambulist uh, titled Rethinking Jewish Diaspora on Analogy, Translation and Objection, where he wants to nuance the concept of Jewish radical diasporism beyond Jewish opposition to Zionism, and which he begins with the very famous critique of Stuart Hall that a lot of you probably know of the Jewish conception of diaspora. The second text that we will touch upon is called Against Analogy, which was written just weeks after the murder of George Floyd, where he suggests that progressive Jews need to go beyond invoking Jewish suffering as a means to enable Jewish solidarity with other minorities. 
We will also shortly at the end touch upon diaspora politics, which we think is important to address, and especially now in light of the uh, result of the Israeli election just a week ago, um, when we see really far-right powers that Benjamin Netanyahu is heavily dependent upon. And we already know um, that so many Israelis from our circles are talking about leaving Israel. So the question of diaspora politics becomes really, really pressing and important. And we'll touch upon that as well. So with that context in mind, I'm going to start us off with our first question from a place that I'm perhaps more familiar with in relation to this set of questions and problematics, which is the um, Stuart Hall critique that Yael mentioned and that Ben, you begin your article with. Um, and he brought this criticism of what he sees as a Jewish conception of diaspora in the 90s. And as you say, it promoted a, or prompted rather a um, reconceptualization of what Jewish diaspora could mean and a kind of challenging uh, to rethink and revisit this notion. So could you just shortly introduce this criticism to start us off and talk about the way that it's kind of um, prompted reformulations of Jewish diasporism. Yeah, um, thank you. So when Leopold Lambert at The Funambulist asked me to, that they said that they were going to do this diaspora issue and asked me to write a piece on Jewish diaspora, um, you know, I, I began, it's something that I'd been thinking about for a while because Jewish diaspora had become such uh, an important kind of um, icon in the last, I would say, 10, 15 years, especially in uh, progressive Jewish movements in the United States. Um, and I had been thinking a lot about diaspora. And, and so I was thinking, well, how am I going to really approach this? And what's the question I, I want to ask? And I kind of just went back to sort of the motherboard, so to speak, right? I, I kind of was trying to think about, well, why did this happen? Why did this kind of explosion of diaspora language happen? Not just among Jews, obviously. I mean, especially even, I would say, beyond Jews. And that's what made it so interesting to me. And, um, you know, why in the 90s and beyond did this, this very strange, you know, Greek term become such a linchpin of post-colonial studies, uh, multiculturalism, um, etc. And so I went back and I kind of noticed that there was really this moment, which interestingly, I and I mean, we could maybe talk about this after, but, you know, coincides obviously with the end of the Cold War um, and or what, you know, Fukuyama would call the end of history, right? And, and I think that there is a, a kind of uneasy relationship between the explosion of diaspora discourse and the rise of kind of neoliberal multiculturalism. Um, right. Uh, so, so I went back to that and, and then, you know, Stuart Hall's text being one of these kinds of foundational texts, uh, cultural identity and diaspora written in 19 or published in 1990. Um, and what he says there is, um, that, or, or I should say what he, what he does in that piece is he distinguishes his new concept of diaspora um, which is all about kind of hybridity, right? And cultural hybridity, and this is very much coming out of that kind of academic post-colonial moment of, you know, Homi Baba and others. Um, and he defines this new concept of diaspora against what he calls um, this the old imperializing, hegemonizing form of um, ethnicity, 
Um, and he sort of makes these uh, kind of, you know, veiled, backhanded references um, to, to Jews, right? So he says, for example, um, that we see, you know, uh, how harmful this backward-looking conception of diaspora is when we look at the fate of the people of Palestine. Um, which is really quite interesting, right? Because the fate of the people of Palestine um, has resulted from the opposite of diaspora, but nationalism, um, right? Um, but he, but he is sort of indicting this this concept of diaspora, uh, Jewish diaspora, um, supposedly some old hegemonizing form. And I was wondering, you know, well, what is this? I mean, right? I mean, if you look through Jewish texts, the last hundred, two hundred, three hundred years. They're not really talking about diaspora. It appears sometimes, I mean, uh, Simon Dubnov's dictionary, there's an entry on diaspora. Um, but this word and this concept is not really present. There is galus or galut, exile, right? But that really has a whole other set of theological and political implications, right? And so it seemed to me, and this is not just me, I mean, I'm really building on a lot of others who have critiqued Hall for this, right? That he was one of many people who both wanted to evoke some kind of natural Jewish ground of diaspora, like, right, that this was sort of the urtext of diaspora, but also supersede it, which is, of course, a kind of multi-millennial project in the Christian West, right, of kind of um, appropriating and superseding Jewish concepts. Um, but there was no real engagement with Jewish diaspora, with this concept, right, with a question even if diaspora is adequate for describing Jewish exile, um, or why this Greek term and not the Hebrew term. Um, and so that's kind of where I began. And that's what he was, what Hall was doing. And I was trying to perhaps push against it um, uh, and, and spell out, as I did later, you know, perhaps some of the problems of um, going with a kind of Hall approach, right, and, and reconceptualizing. So in response, a lot of Jewish thinkers sort of took up the mantle of saying, well, that's not quite true. There is a, a Jewish diaspora that is in line with what Hall is trying to write about, a kind of non-statist or anti-statist, um, heterogeneous, post-colonial kind of Jewish diaspora. Um, and we see this in the work of, you know, obviously this kind of classic work of, of Daniel and Jonathan Boyarin in um, uh, pra practice, no, Powers of Diaspora. Um, but then more on the ground, too, in, in terms of Melanie K. Kantrowitz, um, the founder of, of JFRAG, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, a significant social action group in, based in New York City. She wrote an important book called The Colors of Jews, um, which really kind of also sort of took up the mantle of articulating uh, a form of sort of Jewish diasporism um, in line with sort of anti-racist uh, and post-colonial political agendas. Right. And you're kind of the way I read what you're doing in, in your article, you're also kind of going beyond those to talk about different what you call different practices, um, almost individual practices um, that Jews could do in order to kind of like um, trouble those those ideas or statist ideas, but also to go beyond the question of Zionism. Can you give us some example to those practices um, you touch upon or elaborate? Yeah. Yeah, right. So that was part of my attempt to displace this focus on Jewish identity um, and Jewish self-fashioning, right? Because what's happened is that 
when when diaspora has become this diasporism, right? And I'm a diasporist Jew, or right, some those these kinds of, or I practice diasporic Judaism, right? I, I, it's etc., right? Those kinds of claims, right? It becomes really just a sort of intra-Jewish fight, right? And you know, we're this is the real Judaism. No, this is the real Judaism, right? And the question of like actual state power and violence, um, and obviously those who who face the the brunt of it in Palestine, Palestinians, right, really kind of fades away, um, and and in that sense, I would say the political kind of question and the political stakes of diaspora fades away. So I was trying then to think about well, before this kind of self conscious fashioning of a diasporist identity, um, what are sort of practices, real political practices that we might consider diasporic? before or without having to make any kind of um, identity claims, right? Because as I said, I'm, I'm very concerned with how these identity claims um, have in some ways tended to towards a kind of self-purification, right? Distinguishing oneself from kind of the big bad nationalism or like, for example, Zionism. I am not a Zionist Jew, right? My Judaism isn't contaminated by that, um, which I don't have a problem with per se, I mean, that's all fine and well, but it just diverts attention from the actual political practices. And so, you know, I'm a student of Richard Eiten. Um, uh, I was his student in, in at Northwestern University, the late Richard Eiten, um, and, and my Funambulist piece is dedicated to him. And I really sort of draw on his description and analysis of diaspora, specifically Black diaspora, um, as an impulse that resists hierarchy, hegemony and administration. And he says it mobilizes um, the capacity to imagine and operate simultaneously within, against, and outside the nation state, right? That's what he says. So it's not about fashioning oneself against specifically the nation state as much as it's about a sort of transgressive and trickstery set of movements within and across its borders, right? A kind of disinvestment from the authority of the nation state. Um, and so I would like to really see, and what I was trying to sort of lay the groundwork for in this piece was a theory of not Jewish diasporic identity or diasporic Judaism, but Jewish diasporic political agency, right? What would that really look like? Um, and not just sort of continually accumulating examples of kind of, you know, multicultural Jewish identity, right? And, you know, like, you know, I go to Mimuna on Wednesday and I go to Ashkenazi night on Thursday or something, right? So I tried to suggest sort of three examples in the piece that sort of are in different locations. So one of them is um, Jewish migrant university students, especially in the German and Austro-Hungarian empires who at the turn of the 20th century were strapping contraband Yiddish socialist literature to their bodies um, and and smuggling it back into the Russian empire to bring it back home to their communities, their shtetlich there, um, right? So this kind of transgressive um, cross-border uh, movement, right? And, and, and this sort of criminal activity of smuggling socialist revolutionary literature through the fact that these are sort of Jewish migrant students, right? Who are coming from these communities in the Russian empire into universities, let's say in the German empire, right? Um, they're sort of practicing this kind of subversive diasporic political agency uh, before 
there was such a name for it, right? And then, then I think of uh, another example I highlight is um, uh, Auschwitz survivor Marceline Loridan Yvans, who's in um, who was lived in France, post-war France, um, and she was um, very involved in the underground Algerian anti-colonial movement, um, specifically as uh, a so-called suitcase carrier, one of these people who was carrying and storing suitcases of funds for the underground Algerian anti-colonial movement, right? And there's an example of, you know, this kind of secretive um, withdrawal within the empire, within France itself, um, within the metropole, right? But that nonetheless is a kind of attempt to disrupt the French state, right? Certainly. Um, and that was certainly informed as she herself discussed and wrote about by her experience as a Holocaust survivor, um, which, which informed much of her subsequent work, including sort of, she made a documentary about Vietnam. I mean, she's really a fascinating figure. Um, and then finally, uh, oh, and then I finally talk about the Israeli Black Panthers. Um, uh, and I taught, and, and they're specifically traveling to illegally meet, which was illegal for Israelis, with, with the leaders of the PLO um, in some of the earlier days of their formation. Um, and the reason why I wanted to talk about them in particular is because the, I think it's important, and this is where we get to this question around sort of beyond Zionism, it's important to think about diaspora not simply as an inverse of Zionism, right, but as something that can disrupt and transgress it from within, right, or any status logic from within. Um, so it's not about us in diaspora and others in sort of the land or the state, right, which really serves to just reify these categories as oppositional, right, and therefore diaspora is not doing any kind of critical work. It's just not Zionism. Rather, to think about how those within the state, within the space of the state, right, right, might nonetheless resist, retreat, withdraw, and disrupt in critical, critical ways. Um, so those sorts of three examples I, I laid out just as a kind of suggestion, right, that diasporic politics, Jewish diasporic politics, need not be some big claim about Jewish identity or Judaism or Jewish ritual, right? But can actually just consist in very specific acts, right? Um, that accumulate over time towards these kinds of, this specific goal of um, disrupting uh, statist hegemony. Um, so maybe I'll just leave it there because I have been talking a while. No, thank you. That's great. And I think it gives us a lot of ground. But uh, I'll just ask one more question, um, which is around, I mean, you, you mentioned that the article is dedicated to Richard Eiton, um, who's writing on Black Diaspora. And you also were talking about some like identity claims, you're talking about the Algerian um, anti-colonial movement. And what these, what these kinds of um, these practices invite is a question of analogy. So, and this is also something that you kind of begin talking about when you, you mention um, the British Africanist George Shepperson, who delivered this landmark paper um, in, at the 1965 International Conference um, of African History at the University of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. And you mention you use the word compelled. You say he was compelled to appeal to a Jewish analogy. And so I want to ask, why do you think he was compelled or because analogy is, of course, comparison, they're very debated, they're very controversial. And um, so maybe you can elaborate like the uses that these kinds of analogies can get put to by and by whom and to what ends. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when you go start looking at, you know, when this concept of diaspora now became in the 20th century, started to become affixed to Jews um, specifically, right? Because really it had been used before to describe so many people, Armenians, especially Greeks, originally, I would say even, you know, it was a term that Greeks used to describe their own Greek settlers um, in, in the Greek empire. So uh, when did it become really affixed to Jews? And you really see that it's, and, and many scholars would agree, um, you know, that George Shepperson is this key moment when in 1965, he gives this paper, right? And he says, and he begins with this sort of grandiose claim about the Jewish people, right? Scattering this biblical quote, right? Of the Jewish people kind of, um, uh, scattering across the the world, um, and when you look at it, and then you look at the Hebrew, you're like, wait, this is not actually the diaspora verse. <laughs> this is not where this word diaspora comes from, right? And this is where it's constantly actually referred to this verse, right, of Jew, you know, being scattered all over. But that's not when when the when the Jewish Bible was translated into Greek, and we got this word diaspora, it wasn't from there. Um, uh, and so I'm suddenly thinking, what's going on? And why didn't anyone ever feel like, maybe I need to like look into this, right? Um, and that's why I sort of use this language of like, was compelled. There seems to be this kind of, and especially in the post-war moment, um, post-Holocaust moment, this, this compulsion in a way to just appeal to Jewish suffering, a history of Jewish suffering as a kind of, authority, right? A kind of ground on which you can compare other sufferings, certainly measure other sufferings, but also as a paradigm, right? That you can take from. And that's, and that's this example that we see um, with diaspora. Now, why he did, I mean, specifically, we can never know, but I think it is interesting. And what I talk about in, in the essay, right, is that there is a very interesting kind of paper trail um, uh, that, that connects Shepperson to this post-war moment of Jewish analogy. Um, and so we see right, right after the Holocaust that there's a bunch of these studies, especially in the United States, but also in France, on uh, prejudice, right, um, and, and, uh, and trying to think about different forms of of, of racism as specifically these kinds of individual prejudices, right? And med being able to measure prejudice. Um, and on the flip side, there's also a number of studies that are being done on Holocaust survivors. Um, and these become um, pretty critical to early discourses around trauma and the effects of racial oppression. So very interestingly, um, in American uh, Jewish historian, Stanley Elkins, wrote a very critical book um, called Slavery, A Problem in American Institutional and, and Intellectual Life um, in 1959. Um, and in this book, we get sort of a foundational moment of this analogy, okay? Because what he does in this book, which is about slavery, um, Ameri and, and specifically um, American slavery, which he sort of characterizes as uh, exceptionally brutal, in comparison to Spanish American slavery. Um, the argument that he makes is he draws on Bruno Betelheim's research on early concentration camp survivors. Um, and, the, and, you know, Betelheim kind of demonstrated this sort of total degradation 
of the concentration camp prisoner such that it totally broke the ability of prisoners to resist. Now, this research has been, you know, heavily, heavily critiqued since then in terms of the kind of image of a degraded, you know, corpse that that he really produces and is not necessarily so accurate. But nonetheless, this was powerful. And Elkins, then, this historian of slavery, drew on this research on Nazi concentration camp survivors to argue that this is why um, black people in the United States were so uh, uh, docile, right? He kind of argued that there was a, uh, that the, the paternalism of the plantation sort of produced um, these infantilized uh, subjects who did not have a possibility to resist. Now, ultimately, of course, Elkins was, you know, very ob obviously sympathetic to the enslaved. We might bristle at these kinds of arguments today, right, and the sort of paternalism involved, etc. He was writing, you know, uh, attempting to be sympathetic and obviously with the civil rights movement as well. But nonetheless, right, we see this very interesting work where he's relying on this analogy, right, to a Nazi concentration camp prisoner to sort of demonstrate that black Americans were reduced to a kind of infantilized um, and depoliticized state, right? Um, now, so you might think, okay, whatever, you know, it's a nice scholarly book, who cares? But Moynihan, uh, excuse me, Jefferson actually reviewed this book and actually commented on the analogy as incredibly compelling, right? Um, before he wrote his paper on Jewish diaspora. Um, and the influence of this analogy in particular is very serious. I mean, there's policy consequences, which is that um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was um, an American diplomat uh, and sociologist who wrote, um, who, 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 who wrote a very, very important paper um, called that we call sort of the Moynihan Report on um, basically in 1965, right? The same year that Jefferson is delivering his talk. And this report was on the so-called Negro family um, and basically gave a, uh, tried to give a reason for black poverty, right? Um, and the reason that he gave, which became really I would say canonical in American politics from that moment on um, was uh, that sort of ghetto culture and specifically black single mother families, black matriarchal families um, uh, were, the, were at the root of this so-called cycle of poverty, right? So it was a cultural problem. And where did that come from? Who does he cite? Stanley Elkins, right? He cites Stanley Elkins and specifically Stanley Elkins compares into Nazi concentration camp prisoners to say, look, these communities have been totally infantilized, right? They're totally disfigured and dismorphed by slavery, right? And that's the reason for their, um, their ongoing inequality, right? And that's the reason why black communities in the United States have not been able to progress, right? So we see that there's these analogies are, you know, in the air, so to speak, right? At the exact same moment. And Shepperson himself is writing about them. And so I know there were a lot of citations there, but I think it's important to just get a sense of why I felt that Shepperson was really sort of a part of a broader compulsion in a way to turn to Jewish suffering and history as a kind of authoritative basis for understanding racism and anti-racism uh, in, in the post-war moment. Mm -hmm. So maybe now jumping to a complete different time, talking about kind of 
our time more contemporary questions in relation to analogy. Uh, let's move to talk a bit about your other text against analogy, right? Because that text was written following the murders of Breonna Tyler and George Floyd, and basically at the heart of the Black Lives Matter protests. And you write about, in that text, you write about how progressive Jews often tend to mobilize their communities into solidarity with either other minority groups through comparison and analogy. That means that you invoke Jewish suffering in order to invoke uh, um, empathy, right? And that uh, will bring solidarity. And you opt against this kind of mechanism of analogy in that case. So I wanna ask, when does the question of analogy become a useful political means for creating solidarity among amongst minority groups and when do you encounter its limits yeah um thank you so i think the 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 key point i want to emphasize as you said right is that um in that case right i felt analogy was not was no longer useful and was actually perhaps harmful right and so i i just want to make it clear because there were a lot of people after i wrote the piece who you know like basically you know we're like, he's saying you can never make analogies, you can never make compare, you know, et cetera. And that's not what I was saying. I was actually trying to make a very specific strategic intervention, which is really my point, right? Which is that analogy as a form of comparison and comparison in general um, should constantly be evaluated and reevaluated for their political usefulness. The kinds of sort of blanket statements constantly, right, of, you know, these kinds of solidarity and, you know, none of us are free, of all of us are free. I mean, they're nice, um, but they don't necessarily get us anywhere towards these the, the specificity of the political contradictions and crises that we're living in. Um, and one consequence of this sort of, I don't know, superficial um, invocations of solidarity and sameness is that, you know, it, it, it produces this kind of plane of equivalence and this leveling of differences, which um, does not allow us to see actually how social, racialized social structures, right, are reproduced and how we are all a part of them, right, and therefore how we can disrupt their reproduction. Because as much as we would like to believe that we can just sort of stand in a circle and all hold hands and end racism, right? We are all positioned in very different ways in in um, the the racial regimes that we live in, travel to, and um, uh, uh, partake in. And so, uh, it's it's constantly important for us to think and consider self critically our own positions in these comparisons. Um, if we want to anticipate, right, ways that our movements can be co-opted or recuperated into reproducing the status quo. So for in this, in this specific instance here, um, I was trying to make a strategic suggestion that, that was responding to what a lot, a lot of what I was hearing anecdotally from friends and colleagues in this moment. Um, in this really, so to use like Toby Hazlitt's term and he's drawing on Amiri Baraka, what was really this sort of magical moment. Um, uh, uh, and it was a kind of opening, it felt like, um, certainly in my, for, in my whole life. Um, you know, I mean, I saw like a LAPD car like on fire on Melrose in the center of Los Angeles. It was just like euphoric, you know? So, um, 
it was just like incredible. And the question was, you know, where do white Jewish communities, um, institutions fit in? Um, to this conversation, because at the on the superficial level, white Jewish institutions have thought of themselves as a part of anti-racist education, genocide education, right? Um, certainly this kind of constant mythology of the Jewish involvement in the civil rights movement, right? And, and this sort of celebration of that, right? That's how they really think of themselves. But when push comes to shove, and we're asking you to support abolishing the police, then you realize that there's a limit, right? Um, so I was trying to deal with basically these limits where I was hearing from so many people that their friends and family and institutions were just not able to fully come out, right, in alignment with these movements against police brutality. It was very easy for them to say Black Lives Matter. Right. Um, and that's why I was actually at this moment, too, very, very critical of all of the movements of people, these slogans, Jews for black lives. OK, that's very easy. Who's not for who's not a Jew for a black life? Right. It's like, how are you against that? Right. But but if you say Jews for police abolition, then you really find out. Then you really find out who's on board. Right. And I wanted to put those their feet to the fire. Um, and one of the ways that a lot of the organizing among progressive Jewish communities was hitting a dead end was through this strategy of analogy, right? And they were constantly saying, you should support this because your people lived through this too, right? And that's really key too, right? I mean, the people here, we're not talking about people um, who themselves perhaps lived through racist violence or segregation in, in Central or Eastern Europe, right? We're talking about people who feel that that's part of their history, right? Um, so there's already a distance and they're saying, you know, you should support this because Jews went through this too. Jews have been ghettoized. Jews have been, have faced police violence, certainly. Right. Um, and I was recognizing this trend that then th of, of white Jews being asked to, and asking each other to identify with black victimhood in the United States and, and analogize it to past instances of Jewish victimhood. And that was ironically, counterintuitively, actually preventing these very white Jews from seeing their own implication today in structures of anti-black violence. I mean, it was a move to innocence, really, because if you identify with the victim here, then you're no longer a part of the white apparatus that is reproducing this police brutality right? Whether explicitly or tacitly. Um, and the fact is, victim bonding may not actually produce the intended mobilization. There are a number of reasons for this. I mean, analogy is very easy to counter. You just point out differences. And there are always going to be differences. So you just say, well, what about this? And that's it. Analogy's over, right? Um, so strategically, it's not very useful. But even then on the level of victim bonding, I was really sort of drawing from and, and inspired by Bell Hook's writing on second wave feminist organizing. And she argued that white second wave feminists, um, by, by being encouraged to bond as victims with all women, including obviously black women here, right? Um, they were not required then to assume any responsibility for confronting the complexity of their own experience. Right. Um, and, and she says uh, that identifying as victims was a way for them to abdicate responsibility for 
their own role in maintaining this system of sexism, racism, and classism. So similarly, I was drawing on that to argue that a similar thing was happening among white American Jews, right, where they were encouraged to identify with black victims in the United States. Um, and in doing so, they were absolved from considering their own implication um, in uh, the white status quo. And if the reproduction of the status quo is produced significantly because of the invisibility of whiteness and white innocence, then this is the fundamental problem, right? It's fundamentally problematic to ask white Jews to identify at a strategic level, right? I'm not interested in a kind of intellectual conversation around appropriation or not. I'm specifically speaking like we were trying to move things in that moment. Um, and it just wasn't working. And if it's not working, then all the lovely posters about solidarity, you know, white supremacy and anti-Semitism are the same, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. It's just not working. But if we traveled before across times, let's now travel across kind of geographies because, I mean, as you explained exactly the kind of intervention you wanted to do with against analogy, if we take this question, for example, to the context where we are situated, um, there would definitely be a lot of people in the German context in Germany that are against analogy, but for a complete different reason, right? Can you maybe, or how do you yourself in your work deal with this kind of contextual difference? Yeah, so this deals, I think this gets to sort of the other kind of side of maybe what I think are the limits of analogy. Um, not, right, in this case, um, because we're talking right here about speaking towards not primarily non-Jewish Germans, right? So we're not asking Germans to identify with whatever group we're analogizing to um, the victims of Nazism, right? Um, we're, we're usually making an analogy from Nazism to some other experience of racial oppression in order for non-Jewish Germans to sort of understand the stakes, let's say, of anti-migrant or anti-black or anti-Muslim violence, let's say, in contemporary Germany, right? So it's a somewhat of a different kind of, I think, social situation, right? And in that situation, the move to innocence is not really the issue. I mean, maybe the move to innocence is, comes from the rejection of analogy. Um, okay, right? So that, right, we've repented for Nazism, so it, you know, there's no German state racism, right? Or, or, or something like that. Um, but I think more to the point, what we see in Germany is um, the other issue that I mentioned briefly about analogy, which is not about a move to innocence through identification and these claims of empathy and victim bonding, but is rather about analogy's conceptual limits, which as I mentioned, right, um, uh, are that analogy is very easy to uh, dismiss. Right. And in the German context, right, um, where analogy is, you know, verboten, there are two sorts of strategic postures, I think. And one is simply to assert analogy. Um, and we might interestingly consider that a kind of diasporic political act in the sense that it disrupts German Staatskreisung and its fetishization of, of the uniqueness paradigm. Right. But, the, but, but I would say that we can perhaps even get more politically sophisticated 
um, than just asserting analogy in the German context. Um, because in many ways, analogy is just the inverse of like hierarchical comparison, right? Hierarchical comparison says these are different and we can hierarchize them. And analogy says these are the same, right? Um, and they're the both kinds of simplistic claims. Um, but as many people have shown work on sort of comparative racialization and relational racism, um, that analogy as a comparative mode, you know, basically abstracts instances of racial oppression into discrete units um, that we then sort of make a ledger and we compare on both sides, right, how they're similar, right? And so, for example, with the apartheid analogy with respect to South Africa and Israel-Palestine, it sort of sets up both instances on these two sides, right, and you just kind of measure, does it, does it fit? the sort of the 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 one unit right and 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 does the second unit match up um and so similarities are necessarily emphasized at the expense of, of differences um and the strategic problem here right is that it's it's very easy to point out so many differences um it's so many disanalogies right um in the apartheid analogy as for example you mentioned like i know azar dakwar was on on your podcast right so he Right. So he um, he and I are like uh, kindred thinkers in many ways. Um, so, however, that's why I suggest that we shift towards relationality. Right. It's a lot harder to dismiss relationality. And it's also much more uh, historically sophisticated in the sense that this is the simple historical fact is that racial regimes have always borrowed from, responded to and interacted with other racial regimes around the world. Um, there's no racial regime that emerged, you know, from the soil. And so the important question would thus become, what is the relationship between South African apartheid governance and Israeli occupation governance? I mean, it's a matter of historical record that apartheid South Africa supported the state of Israel militarily and economically. Um, and the state of Israel was willing to work with the apartheid state, um, largely as a rebuke to the ANC's longstanding support for the Palestinian cause. Um, and this gets really to the heart of trying to understand how racial regimes reproduce themselves and continue to mutate around the world. Because that's the, that's the problem, right? I mean, that's the moving train that we want to halt, I mean, to use a kind of Benjaminian reference, right? And it's that's the much more urgent question to me than simply the analogy frame, which allows us to just indict a racial regime today because it resembles one in the past, right? But it doesn't get to how do we stop this reproduction. Right. I think it takes us directly to the next question, uh, because you're already mentioning this kind of different acts, um, thinking in relationality in relation mm. to different acts of different um, regimes. And it kind of brings us already back to the um, to the what we started with the with Stuart's whole critique and is centering also of, of Palestine and generally the question of Palestine. And here I want to come to diaspora politics, because I really appreciate what you wrote in the Rethinking Jewish Diaspora, where you suggest that what Jewish thinkers kind of did after um, this explosion um, in the 90s, that they actually, what they did was emphasizing on the heterogeneity and Jewish difference, or they aim to show how Jewish philosophers are actually promoting ethical ideas. Let's think about Judith Butler's uh, Project Parting Ways, right? The reading of Levinas uh, in that context. And you're saying and you're noting that those efforts are not necessarily helping the struggle for the liberation of Palestine. And as you know, after your visit here uh, in the Hijacking Memory Conference, now we have uh, uh, the, the new branch of the Diaspora Alliance um, opening up in 
in Germany, and for the crowd who doesn't know, it's uh, an initiative of progressive Jews uh, that are fighting anti-Semitism, but also very strongly the weaponization of anti-Semitism. So I have many discussions with people also there about the effectiveness of diaspora politics in relation, and I'm going back now to Palestine, in relation to Israel and, and Palestine, and especially as an Israeli, right, uh, as an Israeli that left Israel, uh, for me to just call myself a diasporic Jew, what does it entail to the question of, of Israel-Palestine? And to put it bluntly, if we call ourselves diasporic Jews, does it mean anything to the Israeli state? And can it? Are there acts? Could it actually mean anything? Do you think there are acts that can actually relate to state power? That's a big question. But um, I think that, um, well, first of all, I'll say, you know, to answer, I guess, the last question, First, um, I don't, you know, the word diaspora is the word that the Israeli state used when they created their institute, government institute ministry for the diaspora. Um, this word does not pose a problem to them uh, at all. Um, and in many ways, we might suggest, and I think as, if I recall correctly, as Hanad Suberi has suggested, this, this, the rise in the language of diaspora is intimately connected to actually write the formation of the state of Israel. So, um, and that's where I'm saying, that was sort of connects to this problematic inverse relationship that people have where they think, oh, well, I'll just affiliate with the diaspora and that'll be, and I'll disaffiliate with Jewish nationalism, right? Um, but they're really locked in the, they're like two sides of one coin, right? They're locked in a kind of binary opposition that is ultimately not transgressive or or dialectical if you're a marxist and so i think um uh there's for for me when we think about diaspora politics in relation to palestine you know i again i stress that i think that there's a lot of work going on in palestine that at least when i talk of when i the way i think about diaspora is happening there diasporic work, right? Um, uh, when, you know, Israelis are using their bodies to um, defend Palestinian civilians in the occupied West Bank, right? Um, crossing literal borders to, in doing so, right? I mean, we, we could, and, and be, becoming a real thorn to the state there, right? Um, we can see a kind of perhaps diaspora politics that we might think of as such, it might be helpful to think of as such without necessarily having to identify it, right? Or, or them identify as such. Um, so that's what, you know, in terms of those possibilities. However, I would also say though, in terms of your question around Israelis leaving, uh, you know, I think there's also something to, to say for that. Um, obviously, Israelis permanently leaving the state is, you know, a major disruption of the entire logic of, of what the state of Israel is supposed to be. Um, and when they do, when they then leave the state, right, and use that position to launch critiques of kind of state logics, right, even more so, we see how problematic they become. We know how problematic so many Israelis in Berlin are to the state of Israel, right? Um, and I mean, right, and and so I think that, uh, you know, Cedric Robinson talks a lot about, in Black Marxism, a lot about um, withdrawal and retreat, 
right? And I think that I, I, we're drawing on slave resistance and to, not to make any equivalence whatsoever between um, Israeli settlers and enslaved people in the Caribbean. Um, but nonetheless, I think we can learn from that, that resistance comes in many forms and one of which might involve withdrawal and retreat, right? Um, and that can be withdrawal within the formation of kind of communities within that are disruptive of the state, or it could be withdrawal without, right? Um, and the point that I guess that I would make is that both are actually necessary, right? That is what I think the answer to this question is, is that we actually need both because it's both on the outside and the inside that is actually disrupting the sort of hegemony of nation state territorialization, right? The fact that it's because the oppositional, as we've talked about, just reifies the state there. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's perhaps, I guess, what, what I think in terms of that question around diaspora vis-a-vis -vis, um, the Israeli Jews. And the last point I'll make is I agree with you in terms of, uh, you know, I, I, I really think we need to get away from these intramural, intra-Jewish kind of polemics, right, around what is the real ethical Judaism or not. Um, there are many Judaisms. Zionism is Judaism. There's also many other Judaisms, right? Um, we don't have to fight over and play these authenticity politics. And I think diaspora is one way that we can try to avoid that. Thank you, Ben. That Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. To listeners, do check out our website for more information, links, and references. You can find us at minor.hypotheses.org forward slash podcast. Thank you.